Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. It is definitely a joy to open the Word of God with you this morning. I want to start out by reading from James. James 1, verses 2 through 4 reads this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Part of this sermon was written in the children's hospital surgery waiting room while Joella was receiving emergency surgery for a catheter in her head. It was a hard moment to see Joy suffering. It was a moment of despair, a moment of doubt, and a a moment of sorrow. These are the trials that God promised affect our fallen world. But what happens next, what do we do with the trial, is critical. How do we respond? We can go the worldly route and wallow in our sorrow and get angry at God, or we can go to the word of God, recognizing that he is an ever-present help in our times of trouble. Thankfully for Tara and I, we treasure the word of God. We cling to it. And we also have people in our lives who point us directly to the scriptures. Pastor Dave called while we were in the surgery waiting room and read a sweet passage from Psalm 18. This is what it said. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. Our hearts were fixed on the word of God, and that strengthened us during this time of trial. Perhaps you've experienced a similar sorrow. Maybe it was a loss of a loved one. Maybe it was a loss of a job, or perhaps a really tough medical diagnosis. There's plenty of trials in this life. And I want you to think of a recent trial that you may have experienced. You were left with a decision. Remain in your sorrow or turn to the word, recognizing that he is our source of strength and that he is in control. See, God's word restores our joy and it reminds us that he's in control and is our refuge. So in the text that we'll be unpacking this morning, we'll be encountering two disciples who are in despair. They're broken and they're consumed by the events that happen in Jerusalem to Jesus Christ. Their hearts are heavy laden over the fact that their Messiah was crucified. And they're taking a very lonely, sorrowful walk to Emmaus to return to their old life. You see, their biblical understanding was incomplete. They did not understand the mission of Christ. They needed correction. Then something incredible happens. 
Turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be starting in verse 13. Luke chapter 24, continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. And instead of reading the whole narrative, we're going to just be looking at little pieces at a time because this is an awesome text and I do not want to reveal all of it until we get to each piece. You're going to see a lot of wonderful truth in this passage. Verses 13 and 14 of Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Luke starts out the narrative by telling us it was that very day. What day is Luke referencing? We have to go back to Luke chapter 24, the beginning, and we see he's talking about resurrection day, the happiest, most joy-filled day for you and I because Jesus is alive, amen? That's the day that we cling to. Our hope is in the resurrection. And here we see that very day, two disciples leaving Jerusalem, returning to their old life. This is our first instance of irony in this text. The day that should be joy-filled is full of sorrow and mourning as these disciples are leaving Jerusalem. It's a day that should give you and I endless hope since Christ is alive. The scriptures tell us this is a seven-mile journey. We do not know where Emmaus is. We've never found the ruins of Emmaus, but we know that it's a seven-mile journey, and that's about a two- to three-hour trip. So you can just imagine what a lonely walk this is when you think that Christ is dead and your hope is all gone. And so a sorrowful walk. They're discussing the events, and what they were really thinking about was the fact that the Romans were oppressing the people of Israel. And so they thought that Jesus Christ was going to immediately deliver them from the tyranny of the Romans. That's what their hope was in. And then we're going to see what happens next. Verses 15 through 17. While they're having this discussion and talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. This is, in Luke, the first account of the risen Jesus Christ. Now, as I think about where would Jesus first appear after the resurrection, my mind would go, wouldn't he show up at the temple and be like, hey, you crucified me, but here I am. I'm alive. I am the son of God. That's where I would think. But instead, in Luke's account, he goes to these two disciples in despair. What a wonderful display of the compassion of Jesus Christ to seek out these two who had a misunderstanding of who he is. So as they're discussing, Jesus himself appears. The resurrected Savior of the world joins them on this journey, but their eyes are kept from recognizing him. They were unable to identify this man as Jesus Christ. Clearly, God's hand was preventing them from seeing him. So Jesus asks about the conversation that they're happen that's happening. A reminder, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is omniscient. That is a big word, but it means that he is all-knowing and all-seeing. 
Jesus knew exactly what the conversation was. And yet, he invites these disciples to share with him what they're thinking. We see this throughout the scriptures. God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows the words that we are about to say. He knows the words we even want to say. He knows. Yet scripture tells us to cast our anxieties upon him. For what reason? Because he cares for us. He wants us to share our hearts with him. What a wonderful savior. He longs for you and I to be transparent before him and to share our concerns, even though he thoroughly knows. So when Jesus asks this question, it strikes a nerve in these two disciples, these two followers of Christ. The text tells us that Jesus asks, what are the things you're discussing? And as they're walking, you can just picture this, they're walking and Jesus comes up, hey, what are you guys talking about? They just stand still, looking sad. Why? Why would they be sad with that question? Because all the healing that was happening, they're going back to their old life. Jesus brings this topic up again. It's like ripping that Band-Aid off and exposing their false understanding. And so they are sad. They're full of sorrow. That word sad means gloom. They were full of gloom. They thought that Jesus was going to take care of the issue with the Romans. But that hope that Jesus would have immediate victory crumbled when the Romans nailed him to a cross. Their hope destroyed. That's why they're full of gloom and sorrow. One of the believers responds. Look at verse 18 through 21. So Jesus asks, What's, what are you discussing? They look sad and then they respond. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he, Jesus, said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happen. This passage is so full of irony. Let's unpack it. Are you the only one who doesn't know what happened? In reality, Jesus is the only one who actually knows what happened. Because it happened to him. So Jesus probes even farther, asking them, What things? What are you talking about? What are these things concerning? Again, Jesus concerned about their heart. He's exposing their false understanding of who Jesus is. He wants them to share their concerns. So Cleopas fills Jesus in with what happened to Jesus. Interesting. They share about Jesus being a prophet. That is true. Jesus is a prophet, but it's insufficient. Jesus is so much more than a prophet. He holds a, two other offices. He's the high priest, which means he mediates for you and I as our great high priest. He made intercession for us by his blood on Calvary's cross. And he's also king, which means he's worthy of all praise. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They say a prophet, it's insufficient. Jesus is so much more than that. Then we see in verse 21, look there again. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
When they say that, it sounds as if their theology or their understanding is correct, but it's not. What they mean when they say that is, we had hoped, we can see it's a past tense use there, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. What they're saying is, we had hoped that they be, we would be free from Roman tyranny, and look, nothing changed. And so their hope is a past tense. They hoped that Jesus would have freed them, but he didn't. Jesus' mission was so much greater, and they completely missed it. He was on mission not to free them from Roman tyranny, but to reconcile to himself all things. It's so much greater than what they thought. Colossians 1, 19 through 22, a beautiful passage of scripture. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to, again, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by what? The blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated, that means that we were separated. We were hostile in mind. We were set against God, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And here is the purpose of Jesus's mission. This is what they missed. Do not miss what Jesus accomplished on Calvary's cross. It's right here. Why did he do all this? in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Church, that is so much greater than freeing them from Roman tyranny. He has made, if you believe in Jesus Christ, he has made you holy, he's made you blameless, and he's made you above reproach that you can stand before the Father because of the blood of Jesus. Isn't that so much greater than being freed from Roman persecution, which was bad, but this is so much better. Jesus' mission was greater, and these two disciples had no idea. They completely missed it. They didn't understand Christ's mission. And Christ, in his compassion, his mercy, takes the time to visit with these two to do some spiritual heart surgery and to repair their wayward thinking. Again, the compassion of Jesus Christ is so rich. At the end of verse 21, it says, yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happen. The New Testament believer, which is what we are, we have the full canon of scripture in our hands. When you hear the phrase, the third day, what might come to mind? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we hear the third day, our mind should go directly to the fact that he promised he would rise again on the third day. We see that in Luke 9, 21 through 22. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed. And on which day? Third day, that's correct. Maybe raised. Luke 18, 32 through 33, he will be delivered over the Gentiles, will be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon. After flogging him, they'll kill him. And on the third day, maybe with a little bit more enthusiasm, on the third day, there it is, that's better, he will rise. So Jesus already used language of the third day, and these disciples say, and it's the third day. Do you see the irony here? This should be the day that they celebrate. Now, you and I have the ability to look back and see the full narrative of God's word. These disciples were in the middle of it. They didn't have the full canon of scripture. 
We're indwelled with the Holy Spirit who assists us in the reading of his word. And so they did not have a good biblical understanding of who Christ is. And this account shows the immense love that Jesus has for his own to go and seek them out on this lonely road. He pursues them with reckless abandon. These followers of Christ are in despair. They continue to unpack, and Jesus is continuing to ask questions. Look at what they say next before Jesus speaks. Verses 22 through 24. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he's alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now we learn that these disciples, these followers of Christ, were even in the know that the tomb was empty. Yet they are in such despair over the fact that Jesus did not free them immediately from Roman persecution, that they're missing the bigger narrative that God has in play. They disregard the testimony of an empty tomb because all their hope was lost in Jesus being put on a cross. They did not understand the claims of the resurrection. If you recall from last week, we were reminded that the testimony of women during this time was considered unreliable. We see here another clue for the proof of the resurrection. And the fact that women are the ones who come upon the empty tomb is a great proof for the truth of the resurrection. Why do we make that claim? If the testimony of women at the time was unreliable, and they were trying to make up a narrative to try to trick you and I into believing, surely women wouldn't be the ones that they would have said came upon the grave. And so the fact that women discovered the empty tomb is a great proof for the, re- the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its truth. And these faithful women that saw the tomb was empty, what did they do? They went and carried the good news back to the other believers and shared with them what they saw. Unfortunately, Luke 24:11 tells us the words that the women shared seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. However, disciples, other believers were sent to the tomb and what did they see? Just what the women said, the body is not there. But they did not see the risen savior. So these disciples are still in despair, which is another piece of irony. Because where's the risen savior now? Right next to them on the road to Emmaus. So nobody's seen the risen Savior, and they're in despair, but Jesus is right next to them, and they just do not know it. Now Jesus has asked all the questions. Everything is out on the table. They've exposed that their understanding of of Christ is false. And now Jesus is going to do the spiritual heart surgery as the great physician in helping them understand who he is and that the scriptures all pointed to him. Look at verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus calls out, their foolish understanding, and he replaces it with biblical understanding. Can you imagine 
sitting under this teaching. I feel bad for you that you're having to sit under this teaching when we're looking at this one, right? It must have been extraordinary, beautiful, wonderful. They were in complete despair, shame, and then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ joins them on the road, travels with them, teaches them how the Old Testament points directly to him. And then he interprets all the passages and shows them what they mean. The sovereign of the universe taking the time to invest into these two disciples in despair. How precious that our Messiah would care again for his own like this. It's another passage of scripture. I just wish I could have been there. Watching as Jesus is opening the text and their minds just completely blown as it's all about Jesus Christ. The Bible is all about Jesus. That's an important truth that you and I need to walk away with. The Old Testament points directly to Jesus Christ. Beginning with Moses through all the prophets, it's all about Christ. And that's verified because Jesus here shows them that it's all about him. That leads us to the first part of our main point, and that is to know the word. Know the word. If you notice, the word word is fully capitalized. Why? In the Gospel of John, Jesus is referred to as the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so know the word, meaning know Christ, but also this is what? The word of God. And so we need to know Christ and know the scriptures. That's the first part. And we need to know them in their right context. I just made the claim that the Old Testament points directly to Christ. There are some helpful resources that the pastors put together on our blog post. And this one that's on there is Jesus in the Bible. And it's seeing Jesus in every book of the Bible. And so I just said that each of the books of the Bible point to Christ. This helps to show how they do that. There's another article that shows um, on the website, too, of how the Old Testament is always pointing to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so just want to encourage you to check out that blog and make sure that you look at those resources. It will really encourage your heart to know that all the scriptures point to Jesus. Let's move forward to verses 28 and 29. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. All right, so their two- to three-hour journey is concluding. Jesus has opened up the word to them, going through all the Old Testament, showing how it's all about him. They reach Emmaus. The two disciples are now going to go back to their hometown or go back to Emmaus where they were headed. And the scriptures say that Jesus acted as if he was going further. So you can just picture the disciples and Jesus just continues to walk on the road. I found this fascinating. Why did Jesus do that? The scriptures say Jesus acted. I looked up the word acted, and it means to pretend. Having a five-year-old, I know what pretend means. And so I was fascinated. What does it mean that Jesus pretended to move further on the road? Why would he do this? 
Why not just go with them to Emmaus? And again, I think it's the compassion of Jesus now to give them an opportunity to invite Jesus to spend the time with them. And they say, stay with us. It's toward evening. The day's far spent. It'd be dangerous to travel these roads in the dark. And so they're inviting Jesus, stay with us, even though they don't know who he is. They desperately still want to spend time with him. They had to invite him to join. They love being with him. Their cup overflowed with joy with Christ, which is interesting because apart from Jesus, they were sad. Now with Christ, stay with us. Please stay with us. They're thrilled and want to be with him more. And a sweet time of fellowship ensues. And it's awesome love, again, displayed by Christ. See, the presence of God is refreshing. Amen? Here's the important truth. They were in the word of God together. That is what gave them joy and peace and hope in the middle of their despair. They were marveling that the scriptures point right to Jesus, who is right next to them, even though they don't know yet. But watch what happens. They're about to find out. Verses 30 and 31. When he was at the table with them, so now they are fellowshipping together, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Their eyes are open. As Jesus took the bread, blessed, gave it to them, at that exact moment, eyes are open. They realize that this is the risen Savior of the world, the aha moment, Jesus right there caring for them in their midst and pointing them right to the word of God, which is all about him. And then right after that, he vanishes. Jesus could have picked any time he desired to open their eyes. And so I wanted to know, why was it right here? Why did Jesus not open their eyes on the road? And why not after the meal? What was the point of opening their eyes at the breaking of the bread? What's significant about that? And so for you and I, having the full canon of scripture, we can look back and see a reference to this breaking of bread, and then we can look forward and see, again, a reference to the breaking of the bread. I want to do that for you. When we look back in the Bible, we go still in Luke's writing, Luke 22, 19, where Jesus institutes communion at the Lord's Supper. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion is all about the remembrance that Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed on Calvary's cross. For what? The forgiveness of sins to reconcile us to himself. And so by revealing himself there, these disciples think about what Jesus said. Oh, that's right. The narrative, his purpose, his mission was so much greater than just Roman tyranny. It was the forgiveness of all who believe. Jesus said that. When you move forward in your Bible, you come across Luke's second writing, which is Acts. And Acts 2.42 is a passage where the early church is gathering together. And this is what it reads. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This time, the breaking of bread is the sweet fellowship that happens in the family of God. So the early church would spend time together growing in the knowledge of God's word and taking a meal together. And so no wonder Jesus used this exact moment 
because it calls the disciples and us today to remember what Christ has done and then to remember the sweet fellowship that we have as the body of Christ together. So after the disciples pick up their jaw off the floor and put it back because it dropped from seeing Jesus and then seeing him vanish, the rush of emotions, the sorrow, the brokenness to this absolute joy, all their hope restored and then some, Jesus is alive. Then I think what probably they focused on was the compassion that Jesus displayed towards them. After they marveled at everything else, they had to have thought, Jesus met us on this road when we left Jerusalem and now he came to us on a dusty road when we were going back to our old life. The compassion of Jesus. I'm blown away by God's compassion towards me to redeem me from my multitude of sins. Are you blown away by the compassion that Jesus has displayed to you? should be. These disciples must have been in awe. And look what comes out of their mouths next. Verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? In most cases, heartburn's awful, but this is the exception. Their hearts burned as Christ opened the word to them. They were consumed by the goodness of God. And this is a key part of the text this morning. They didn't know it was Jesus when he was opening the scriptures. And yet their hearts longed for the word of God that he was teaching. God's word changes lives. And having a proper understanding of the word of God will change your life. Jesus interpreted the scriptures for them. They saw the beautiful tapestry of God's word as he's writing this narrative of reconciling you and me to himself, of paying for our debt that none of us could have ever paid on our own, and going to the cross, the spotless one, sacrificing himself, being buried in a tomb, and then rising again. The scriptures point us to Christ. I tell my students the gospel of Jesus Christ should never get boring or old to a believer in Jesus. We should always marvel at the goodness of God to save someone like me or like you. In our culture, we're constantly replacing one item with the latest version, but that's never been the case with the gospel. It saves souls for thousands of years. It doesn't need to be updated. It doesn't have to have parts replaced. It has stood the test of time. No matter how many people have attempted to eliminate the gospel, it continues to spread. No matter how many people have attempted to add or take away from the gospel, it still stands. The gospel saves. Their hearts burned as they heard the precious truths, and our hearts should long for the word of God just like that. I remember a pastor sharing a story of his travels to the underground church. He was spending time with the persecuted believers. They were able to get a time where he could teach them and equip them so they could bring the word of God back to their people. So he decided to hone in on one book of the Old Testament. He works through that book, and they're about to dismiss, but nobody left. One of them raises their hand, said, hey, pastor, 
we'll leave our farms go. Can you teach us the rest of the Old Testament? They longed for the word of God, and they were willing to give up even their way of living to meditate and to learn the words so they could bring it back to their people. So the story goes, they spent the days going through the Old Testament, and they ended up finishing with about 12 hours before that pastor had to get back to the States. And so he's thinking, what can I do now? And so he tries to put a pretty bow on the teaching, and a hand comes up again. Pastor, I appreciate what you're sharing, but you did the Old Testament. Can you teach us the New Testament? And this pastor just marvels at their love for the word of God. So the next 12 hours, imagine just jam-packed a study of the New Testament, Gospels all the way through Revelation. Their hearts burn to learn the word of God. We take our access to God's word for granted, don't we? We have the word of God so readily available at our fingertips. You can listen to podcasts and sermons from all across the globe. It's not true for a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So thank the Lord for his kindness in bringing the word to you. The heart that knows God's word also wants to make God's word known. These two believers were not going to stay silent about what they just witnessed. So look at verses 33 through 35. They rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known in the breaking of the bread. Remember what they told Jesus when he pretended? They said, No, you can't keep going. It's dangerous. Stay with us. The day is spent. But what are they doing now? They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. No longer is the day spent. This news is too good to share. It didn't matter that it was late at night. It didn't matter that it wasn't safe to travel. The news couldn't wait. Do you think it was two to three hours still on the road that time? No. I think they made better time this time running and telling them everything that happened. So instead of staying in Emmaus, going back to their old way of living, their plans immediately shifted to a new journey. They had to go make known Jesus and his appearing on the road. And that's the second part of our main point. Know the word and make the word known. Here's one interesting thought as we conclude our study of this passage. Did you notice that Luke named one of the disciples that was on this road Cleopas? Why? Why was one of them mentioned? Why does he name the disciple? When he names the disciple, one truth becomes very likely. The name Cleopas would mean something to the recipients of Luke's gospel. When they see Cleopas, they would know who Luke was referring to. How do they know Cleopas? How many times does Cleopas show up in the scriptures besides this account? Zero. We don't know anything else about him. Why would Luke name him? Here's the reason that I believe. They would know this brother in Christ because I am sure everywhere he went, can I tell you the story? Can I tell you the story of how Jesus met me on the road to Emmaus? How he opened the scriptures to me and showed how all the Old Testament points to him? Can I tell you? Have I told you yet? You can imagine 
this man wanted to make every single person know what happened on the road to Emmaus. So when Luke says Cleopas, you can imagine the recipients of Luke would know exactly who Cleopas was and the story that he constantly told till the day he died. So what? What's this have to do with us? We just studied our spiritual lineage. We just studied our spiritual lineage. What do I mean? Because of the events that you and I just studied, we got to hear the gospel. What am I talking about? God used faithful men and women to carry the good news to you. And it's because faithful men and, and women desired to make Christ known that you received the gospel of Jesus Christ. God used them for that purpose. The torch now has been passed. It's in your hands and it's in my hands to go and pass it to somebody else. I started by telling you a story from CHOP. I want to take you back there. CHOP Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is a great hospital, but there is a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship. People there desperately need to hear the good news of Christ. A few weeks back, I found myself with joy at the CHOP emergency room because she had pneumonia. We arrived at midnight, finally got a room. The nurse comes in. We're thinking through the treatment plan. And she looks at me after we've talked for a little bit. She says, this is 2 in the morning. Jeremy, where do you find your hope? What's your support system? Thank you, God. I'm going to walk right through that door. And minutes later, we're in Ephesians 2, looking at the beautiful gospel of how Christ has redeemed that which was lost. An opportunity in the midst of trial as she's wondering, where do you even get your hope from? How do you have joy when you're here at 2 in the morning? It's because of Christ. Amen? So here's the deal, brothers and sisters, as we wrap up. Trials are on your doorstep. That's a guarantee in the scripture. There will be times of hardship, but you can cling to the word of God just like the psalmist in, one, in Psalm 119.50. This is my comfort in my affliction. What's the comfort of the psalmist? Your word has given me life. In your despair, you can point people to Jesus Christ. They'll ask you, how do you have the hope in the middle of such a tough circumstance? So what an opportunity to brag about how awesome God is and how he sustains you every day. Someone carried the gospel to you? Go and make it known to someone else. Know the word and make the word known. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so grateful for this biblical truth. Your compassion to seek out these two disciples in despair is incredible. For us to witness the heart surgery that you perform, the spiritual heart surgery of helping them understand where their theology was off and to replace it, showing them your grand narrative, the beautiful tapestry that you're reconciling all things to yourself by the blood of your cross. And I pray that you would continue to guide and direct us as we witness to your goodness. 
pray that we'd meditate on your word regularly and then that we would desire to go and make your word known to a world that desperately needs to hear it. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.